Hello there. This show's guest, Veronica Rojas, makes things. She makes extraordinary art in her studio on paper and canvas. She works with her students to do the same at the Creative Growth Center for Arts and Disabilities and Art with Elders in Oakland, California, and she helps to advance new insights and ideas about creative aging alongside neurologists, architects, journalists, economists, psychologists, educators, and other artists as a fellow at the Global Brain Health Institute at the University of California, San Francisco. To an outsider, this might seem like an incongruous stretch, but Veronica's take is that these seemingly disparate work environments and diverse relationships are intrinsically connected because they all help her address the threshold question she has spent her life exploring, namely, how do we grow the multidimensional, multisensory language we need to make sense and meaning as humans together here on Earth? I'm sure you'd agree that this is a tall order for anyone, let alone an individual artist trying to navigate the chaotic change constant story unfolding at the front end of the 21st century. But like many of the guests on this show, Veronica has a superpower. Her special sauce allows her to understand that finding the answer to her question is not up to her alone. In fact, she knows that if somehow she finds herself alone on some mountain with what appears to be the answer to what she's been looking for, that she will have failed miserably in her quest. In short, she knows that the challenges of our collective future demands a collective understanding that in turn produces collective solutions. In our conversation with her, we'll hear about her unique creative path, her passionate commitment to working with and learning from artists with disabilities and neurocognitive disorders, and the learning and leadership journey she has undertaken as a global brain health fellow. Along the way, we'll explore why the arts are being embraced by neuroscientists and clinicians as an effective tool in the treatment of dementia and other health issues related to aging. How the arts and medicine are increasingly finding common ground and how interdisciplinary learning and collaboration have influenced Veronica's work as a visual artist. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, once upon a time in Oakland. Veronica Rojas, welcome to Change the Story. So let me begin by asking you for folks in other parts of the world, where are you sitting right now? So I'm in Oakland, California. It's the Bay Area. We're close to San Francisco. For this area, which will be Oakland and Emmerville, it will be the Chocheño-speaking tribe. I have to say that I'm from Mexico City. I've been here for more than 20 years. But one thing that surprised me when I was here in Oakland is hearing words that I recognize from Mexico. Mm. Nahuatl words, like Temascal, which is a neighbor here in Oakland. That's a word we use in Mexico, and it means basically a sweat lodge. But our sweat lodges in Mexico are both stone. So it can also mean a vessel where you carry water. Also, there's a city named Pinol, yes. which actually is Pinole. Yes. 
So in Mexico, there used to be a candy made out of corn powder, very sweet and purple. So we live in a world that has more roots than we can see, and the roots cross each other numerous times. I think it's a thrilling thing, and especially to discover more of it, don't you think? Yes, yes. And I bet there were so many connections, more than we know, before this country got colonized. So my first question about your life, is there a word or a name that you would attach to your life path? So talking about indigenous words, I think mine would be read, Malinali. Uh, and it is my astrological sign in horoscope. And it means, yeah, read. So I really feel that my life is like a plant, that you, it goes through the cycles. It grows in the water, grows in the swamp, but it's also a very resilient plant, yeah. right? Yeah. And it can survive so much and can come back to life after drying. So I think that's the important part for me, fading away, but then coming back to life. Mm. The fact that you go through the seasons, you dry out, but then springtime comes and you start getting back to life, becoming green again. Mm. And <laughs> yeah. And as it goes through the seasons, it actually becomes different things. So yeah. sometimes it's food and sometimes, depending on the reed, it could be something that could be harvested and used to make paper? Exactly, exactly. So, so I guess the capacity to reinvent yourself. Yes, <laughs> that's wonderful. I love that. Okay, I'm never going to think of reeds in the same way. <laughs> so when you sit down with folks who don't know what you do, how do you describe what you do in the world? Yeah, that's always a difficult thing to do. I would yeah. basically tell them, well, you know, I'm a visual artist. I like painting and drawing. I like to be inspired by nature and pre-Hispanic codex and their symbols. I like talking about feminine energy and transformation, healing. And one important thing that I do is working with a community. I consider myself a teaching artist and being a visual artist and teacher kind of go hand in hand. One inspires the other. Yeah. So why don't you tell me the journey that took you from your life as a teacher and an artist into your relationship with the Global Brain Health Institute? How did that happen? Well, it happened unexpectedly. I did not plan for it. I had just finished my master's and we never really thought about how are we going to survive as students? So, so I was faced with that fact right after celebrating and being happy that it was over. It's like, how am I going to survive? So I remember back then there was a magazine called Art Week. Art Week. Art Week, yes, of course. And they would post jobs there. And I saw this little ad saying that they were looking for an art instructor at a community. They didn't really say what kind of community it was, but I thought it's worth going and check it out. And I need the money, right? Right. So, so I did. 
Um, and when I went there, I realized that the community was adults with developmental disabilities, which I had never had an experience working with this population. And, and I was very curious, and I had my interview. And one of the things w that they asked me was, and they were very emphatic about this question, is if I would ever censor people when doing their artwork. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, never. I, it would go against my grain. And that was gave me the job right away. Wow. Yes. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to do this. I had no idea because I did not know anything about people with developmental disabilities. So I had to learn as I went along. But for me, they were just like any other kind of art student. I mm -hmm. wouldn't change the way I taught. And I think the fact that I treated them as people mm -hmm. who happen to have a developmental disability really help us see each other at who we are. And, and it became a very beautiful artistic community because I saw that their creative abilities were incredible. Yeah. They were artists in their own right. And at the very beginning, we were both having a little bit of a hard time opening up as we realized our capacities at creativity. We just started opening up and sharing things. And it became a life passion for me. So that's how I started. And then I also started working with a beautiful organization called Art with Elder. And it was the same kind of experience, which taught me, you know, we come in with so many biases. And it's like a work that we have to constantly be doing with ourselves is trying to overcome these biases. And I also learned that people with neurocognitive disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, they have so much to offer like our perception of what aging and neurocognitive diseases, it really isolates people. We really don't integrate people to that community. So I learned that the power of art to integrate people who have been dehumanized, who have suffered discrimination, how the arts can change all that because it changes the perception of how people view them. And it also changes the perception they have on themselves. So just that has brought me to want to understand more. That's why I kind of joined the Global Brain Health Institute thinking of what more is it to all this, to the arts, to brain health? How does it affect people who have dementia? How, and also the power of healing and bringing quality of life to people and well-being, right? So, so I guess what I'm saying is I like working in the community and a community that hasn't been integrated into our society but mm -hmm. has so much to offer. Yeah. And how did it affect your personal work? So the lack of communication we have 
as a society became more important because we're not integrating everybody to communication. And also the lack of fear when you try to do something creative because there used to be always this anxiety about perfection, at mm-hmm. least for me. Mm-hmm. Whatever I was imagining in my mind had to come out perfectly in a piece of paper, let's say. Mm-hmm. But I will never do that. Never. Never. <laughs> it will always be something different. And just accept that and like even honor that. It, once it comes out from your mind to a piece of paper or canvas or sculpture, it changes and it needs to change organically. So giving a value to that. When I was in art school, uh, I heard so many times frequently from instructors that there should never be a happy accident. Everything should be done purposely. (laughs) And then I learned from my experience working within the community of adults with developmental disability and also older adults with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's that no, mistakes should be welcome. They should be part of the process. Yeah, that's where we learn from. If we don't make mistakes and if we don't make failures, we never learn anything. And sometimes mistakes are actually... Brilliant. Brilliant, exactly. (laughs) And I appreciated so much learning that. Yeah. And it changed also the way I live my life as well. So, yeah. I have to believe that being able to go into another community where all those assumptions just don't live, any kind of place where people aren't sitting there thinking about their artistic identity, and then you bring this thing to do, and they fall in love with it. And then in some ways, and I know my own experience, it allows you to fall back in love sometimes. Exactly. That's the word. (laughs) Fall back in love with the arts because after art school, I had fallen out of it. And also the other beautiful thing is to see how people start identifying themselves as an artist. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people, they think that because they haven't been to school, because they haven't gone to university, that they don't have an ability. But when they see that they are artists, they start seeing themselves as even having a career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's also very beautiful. And also for older adults who see themselves as not being able to learn a new thing and who go to the doctor and are being told, oh, you're going through neurocognitive decline. And they see themselves, okay, so... This is the end. But when they see that, in fact, they can learn something new, that in fact they're good at it, and they have found a new way of communicating when language starting to become more challenging, it changes their own perspective. Absolutely. On themselves. Yes. And it's a cycle because as a teacher, I can't tell you how many times I have realized I'm in somebody else's house and they're teaching me a way to be in the world that is really powerful. Oh, here we are. We're on a journey. Oh, that's interesting. That's unexpected. Yeah. Over and over and over again, the imagination trumps all these stories we tell ourselves about where we should be and how we're supposed to act and and what expectation is reasonable or not. It's a lovely thing. And it's not like you have to go out and get it. It's right there. Exactly. It's right there. Yes. Part two. Learning what we already knew.
So the Global Brain Health Institute, first of all, congratulations for being a part of it. It's no small thing to have become a fellow there. And most people listening probably have never heard of it. And it's an international enterprise, and it has a wonderful mission in the world. Could you just describe what it is? Yeah, so the, what I have is called the Atlantic Fellowship in Global Brain Health Institute. And it happens at, the, at two places. It happens at University of California, San Francisco, and Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. And fellows come from all over the world. People who have worked with the clinical part, the research part or policy making, or like myself, the artistic part of neurocognitive disorders such as Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia, Parkinson's, just to name a few, because there are so many. So it's people who already worked a lot within this field. And, And the idea is to create this fellowship where we can collaborate in bringing brain health awareness to the whole world community, but also solutions like well-being, quality of life, equity. And of course, it would be wonderful to find a cure, but that is not so easy. So finding treatments that help, Mm -hmm. and even treatments in the field of arts. Yes. So, yeah, there's like architects who think about how can we change cities or communities to be more age-friendly. There's policymakers who think how can we change policy within health that could bring equity for people and caregivers as well who are going through this. There's uh, neurologists who want to research more about biomarkers or so many other things. Yeah, so it's a very multidisciplinary community. There's musicians as well. There's dancers. So one of the things that's striking to me is that I think most people involved in the arts inside what I would call sometimes the arts bubble, I think would have a very difficult time imagining that there is a brain health institute that is very high-level research with some of the best people in the world who are doing that research on the medical side, etc. And I think this is so smart that many other people could learn from is that I think they understand that getting what it is they're finding out in the laboratory into the world is hard. It's so hard. And and it's incremental. That's one thing. And so inviting people from other fields to come and be partners so that there's bridges between the kind of white coat laboratory environment in which they work and the world of the people who are struggling with and trying to deal with these issues. That's number one that's extraordinary. But the other thing that's striking to me is that often artists who are even involved in things like this recognize that they're kind of an extra. And that's not the case here. No, I don't think so. Because also right now, the focus is on reducing risk as well. The cures is going to take many years. So the best thing is to reduce the risk. And the arts 
bring music, dancing, painting, drawing can reduce significantly because there's so many things that the arts do, like increasing cognitive abilities, which reduces risk of dementia, right? Like motor skills, visual-spatial abilities, and also creates community because loneliness is a big risk factor in developing dementia. And in many ways provides an alternative strategy, world, environment in which people who are losing some abilities can actually enhance and build other abilities. Exactly. Which gives lie to that idea that it's just a complete downward slope and I'm out of here. Yes, because people live their lives. You can live still many years mm-hmm. and you still can do so much. And also the arts can bring awareness to dementia and the risk factors and also inform people about the resources they have. And break down the stereotypes. When you go to an art show, and the art show is by people who are dealing with dementia, it changes the story about what dementia is. Exactly. And right now, what is happening a lot in Europe and also here, at least at UCSF, is that patient public voice has become a big thing. And in Europe, it's very involved in research as well and here as well. And that is where people who are going through this are becoming involved in decisions regarding themselves including research and including what quality of life means for them and well-being and what works for them. So they're becoming very strong advocates and and it's very beautiful to see how things are changing in the medical field because of this. And they bring more importance to what we are doing, what we're doing makes more sense to us. And I think in the arts, it's all about bringing people quality of life, mm-hmm. well-being, and a way to communicate. Plus, yes, now they have found through research that it does help with cognitive ability. You know, when sensories are activated, it helps the brain always. And the arts do that. And it also activates memories so much. So when you spend time doing this, Do you interact with scientists? Are you learning things from them? Are they learning things from you? Are you getting your fingers in the research? Yeah, yeah, because I do clinical rotations, and then we're in all the classes we have. We're in all of them together. And they also have to learn about the arts, just like we have to learn about biomarkers and tau and amyloid proteins and (laughs) all those things. Many of them come not really knowing about the power of art. Mm -hmm. So they also get like a very fast education about why the art should be included. And I think as the months have gone by, we are collaborating more and talking more. And I think it's the connections and the collaborations are even gonna be more important and stronger. 
as the years go by and as we basically graduate as fellows and become senior fellows, I think we're going to collaborate more. One of the things that occurs to me is that back when we lived in our tribal units, uh, whatever we were learning was of a piece that, you know, what I knew about things that grew, what I know about the cycles of the earth, what I know about fertility, what I know about the gods, all interact and connect with each other. And then, of course, we became specialized. And specialization has been a powerful thing in the world. But it seems like we're just turning the corner into a moment when we're going, oh, wow, okay, this isn't another neighborhood. This is part of my neighborhood. So, I mean, I keep thinking about scientists who are saying, wow, we just found out what the synapses are doing when people hear music. It's just amazing. And then the musician is going, yeah, you you have the picture of the synapses bouncing around out there, but I've been watching this my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is funny because I do fall into cases like that where they're saying, oh, we did this MRI images of this group of people who did art workshops and we saw how the structure of the brain changes or we saw how people enhance their cognitive abilities. And I'm telling them, yes, but I already knew that all along. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Right here. <laughs> yes. Uh, or like, I told you so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's a wonderful thing. I mean, you're in a position where you can cheer each other on. It's mm-hmm. not like, I know better than you. And it's such a, a wonderful thing for all the different ways of knowing in the world to validate each other. Exactly, exactly. It is. It's great. And it's not easy because, like you said, many people come with a very specialized idea. So for them, I think it's just like for us artists has been like mind-blowing seeing the science and finding more about dementia. I think for the scientists, too, seeing how the arts are so important has changed the view. Yes. I mean, you're part of a very, very large tribe of people who make things a lot and like I said there are things that knowledge, wisdom, understanding intuition that comes to us by way of the work. Often we don't have a way to even talk about it and it is a gift to learn Oh, that's what's going on. This is what flow looks like. Yeah, and I think the arts are so important because they can describe things that the science cannot. Yes, absolutely. And particularly for somebody who's having an experience in a state that they have lost their ability to be verbal, which is the dominant mode of communication, and you hand them another way of making sense in the world, to draw, to sing, to move, to dance. I mean, that's basically coming back in touch with a life force. It's a life force. And also, when I go to senior centers and I see sometimes how people are basically forgotten in a senior home, and even by the caregivers in the senior home, because 
usually they are not fully staffed and they work very hard and they are overworked caregivers. But I see that when the caregivers see the creative capacity of the people they care for, their relationship changes completely and the effort to care for them makes more meaning. So even for the caregivers, the work becomes meaningful. It's not more of a robotic thing. Yes. It's rehumanizing. Yes. Particularly for people who are burned out and unappreciated themselves often. And I saw that in prison systems. I've seen that in mental health facilities where all of a sudden someone says, hey, there's a wonderful loving person inside there that I never got to see, and now that's revealed. Yes, yes. It's so beautiful to see that change, that transformation. And I guess we can go back to the symbol of the reed, reed that was drying, suddenly start becoming green again and, and beautiful. So I think that for myself gives a lot of meaning to the work I do as well. Part three, seeing a future. So you've probably had lots of encounters with your students. And do you have a story of a moment that is an example of what you see as the power of the encounter of artists working with people with what we call disabilities? So, yes, I have a few. One that always happens is after a while of going to a senior center or senior home and working with older adults there, they start to identify themselves as an artist. They start getting very happy when they see you. But not only that, but they see it already as an art practice. So they expect you to be there every week. <laughs> but the change also is that they start helping you setting up. The people who can, of course. Yes. So it, yes. what you're saying is that you've changed from being a visitor, maybe even an exotic visitor, to a regular part of their life that they now value and maybe place some responsibility on your shoulder because you're supposed to be here. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly, we yeah, need part you. of you know the facilitator. So I can tell you a story of this wonderful person that had Parkinson, and the people with some of them with Parkinson, sometimes they start drawing very small, and it's impossible for them to draw bigger. So usually, when that happens, they feel like you're here, but I cannot participate because I cannot do drawing. It's all so very small. I don't even want to join the class. But that's where you have to start creating strategies, right? So I remember the man with Parkinson, and he was having this problem. And I remember I told him, it's okay. You can't do the same drawing, but repeatedly through the paper. Mm. And he really enjoyed it, but still ha was having difficulties spacing the drawings on the paper. So then 
we went ahead and started doing printmaking on small little foam boards. And then he would just print them all over the paper. Mm. And that changed the whole thing for him. He started loving the activity that first he felt it was like a painful thing. Like, why are you here bothering me? <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly it was the, the same thing. He was expecting me to be there. And, he, and when I got there, he kind of already had gotten all the art materials out. And he was ready to do his small little foam boards and add them all to big pieces of paper. And so it seems like he went from someone who was reluctantly involved to someone who was actually anticipating it happening and probably starting to design in his head the yes. next thing that he's going to do. Right? Exactly. And we would talk about it and he would tell me, next time you come, can you bring this color? And so uh, it was a very positive change for him. I feel he was, he, he was a perfect example of somebody who had given up and then realizing that, no, there's still things I can learn and I still have talents and I really want to get involved in this and I have this project and I want to finish it and then I want to start another one. Like seeing a future. The other perfect example I have is of an artist because she's an artist now from Mexico City who had never had any kind of education in her life. And so being in an art class was her first ever experience of some kind of education. Wow. And for her, it was very hard because she had a lot of self-doubt about any of her skills and also very low self-confidence. So when she started in the class, she would steal people's artwork and copy them. But little did she know that by copying them, she was actually learning. <laughs> so I did not stop her from doing it. So she would just take people's drawings that were already finished and copy them. And then she would say, oh, I cannot do this. They look horrible. They're supposed to look like this. And they wouldn't. So I had to teach her that that was her way of seeing things. And there was nothing wrong with that. I actually made it more unique and more beautiful. But for her to understand that took a very long time. But suddenly, just happened out of the blue, she decided to do a drawing of her sisters. And it they were beautiful. It was like a very unique style, like with hairdos that were bigger than the body. And it was incredible. And everybody around her gave her compliments. And she had never received compliments in her whole life. So for her, that was also now a transforming experience. And she started seeing herself differently. And what happened with her personality was that she was a very shy person. And she started to open up and be louder and more outspoken. And now she's the queen of the ball. <laughs> yeah, an amazing That's person. Cool. And started to explore with other materials, started to making dolls, ceramics, working on wood and making wood sculptures, and everything she does is just spectacular. 
So when your students get the bug and they start making, what happens? Are there moments when you gather things together and put on a show? Well, they have there are no shows. Uh -huh. So ideally, every participant gets a work into the exhibition. Through Creative Growth, which is the art center for adults with developmental Mm -hmm. disabilities, their mission is also to promote their artwork. Yeah. So many people have exhibitions, not only at the gallery at Creative Growth, right. but museums, galleries yes. outside of Oakland, New York, San Francisco, Paris. Yeah. So they truly have artistic careers, but I see many times people preferring to keep their artwork for themselves mm -hmm. rather than, let's say, giving it away. At Art With Others, people love giving artwork to caregivers or their families mm. as a thank you. Part four, social prescriptions. So when you think about the world that we are stepping into, the future, and what you're learning, we have some people feel ignored, many people who are isolated in various ways, and many people who are angry with each other. So do you see some of the things that you've learned in your work as having application in the way forward as a, as a community? Yes. Yeah. And I think every artist that is involved in, let's say, Arts for Health, and I don't know, if Bill, if you had the chance to read a report that the World Health Organization did in Arts for Health, but it was a review of 3,000 studies that happened in Europe about the benefits of arts on health and well-being. Yes. And, and they found out how important the arts are in every aspect of our health and even conflict situations like living in a migration camp or in war, in, in conflicts like that. But also people are going through cancer, children who might have dyslexia, for example, neurocognitive disorders. And they have found really that the arts are very effective for people in health and illness or conflict situations. Mm -hmm. And it has become such a big thing in Europe that the arts are starting to be prescribed by doctors. They're, yeah. I think they call it so social prescription. Do you know, Bill? I don't remember. Social prescription, yes. And it comes out of the health system in, the, in Great Britain and it's spread all over Europe. Yes. And it's now here as well. <laughs> and... Here's a short description of the social prescription concept from the National Academy for Social Prescribing in Great Britain. Look, we all want to be healthy and happy. That's not an impossible idea, a lie, or a dream. And it may seem like quite an obvious thing to say, whilst we sit wondering whether society would allow us to say we were any other way. You know, that pressure of appearance, are we allowed to say when we're not okay? Because all too often, physical or mental health difficulties get in the way. Whether it's events beyond our control, personal circumstances, or genetics at play. 
because if one in five GP appointments are for non-medical problems, then this could be a time to explore other possibilities and options. Like social prescription, a system that takes a different approach, where they won't just deal with the symptom, but sit with you to trace it, understand the cause, and then create a plan to replace it. Talking about your health, finances, housing, or stress, before linking you to activities that empower and suit you best. What if you were prescribed a social engagement, a social arrangement, to get a pep in your step in your feet on the pavement, a brush in your hand, a tune from your lungs, a talk and support to help you manage your funds. I'm talking about a place to feel connected with the community you've selected, making your activities more effective, experiencing as a collective so you are positively affected whilst feeling safe and protected. Surrounded by new people, allowing you to feel part of something bigger than you. We all want to be healthy and happy. And it's not just a nice idea, but a system that works, that asks if medicine isn't the only option and puts you first. With a wide range of solutions to help you get through, a social prescription could help you too. And particularly in, in places where you have things like memory cafes, the, um, the person who will be our guest starting next Wednesday is someone you may know, Anne Basting. Uh, yes, I who, do know it, her. Okay, so she has as one of her goals is to build bridges between the, the creative aging community and the social prescription infrastructure that's starting to get built because they're not dependent on large institutions and gigantic exactly. amounts of money. And they're very focused on circumstances of individuals and small communities and responsive in those ways. Exactly. Because we've been talking a lot about this, trying to create some policy changing intervention so that at least in California, because here in the States, we have to start small yes. about how to have the arts more of a social prescription. And at Global Brain Health Institute, there's already people trying to work on this and also policymakers. We were talking about getting more involved because trying to find the funding for our programs, for people who are going from their community changes, it's not that easy. No. So if it was socially prescribed, it could change the whole story Yes. for all the stakeholders, Absolutely. for everyone. Absolutely. And it just seems to me as a fellow with neuroscientists at your side, connected to a powerful community of knowledgeable people who are cross-discipline, who understand that this, this is the yeah, real deal. Exactly. And you have no idea how that has helped so much because before as an artist, I will express myself to, let's say, institutions, but I did not have the backing of such an important institution as uh, GBHI. But now I'm saying, oh, I'm an Atlantic <laughs> fellow at Global Brain Health Institute. Then Absolutely. the whole story it, changes. It does. 
And that is the world we live in. And I want to tip my hat to GBHI for actually understanding that's a large part of what they're doing, is they're giving people who by themselves may not be able to make a ripple, but they're giving them a portfolio to bring with them and evidence and connection and colleagues. And connections, like the creative minds of UCSF. Could you say something about creative minds? Yeah, so Creative Minds was actually developed by a fellow at GBHI and and also a neurologist from the Community Outreach Program at the Memory Aging Center at UCSF. So what they do is because they know the power of arts have um, reducing risks for dementia, but also for helping people navigate dementia, they created this art program that brings art and art classes by professional, done by professional artists like myself to community health centers. I actually taught a class recently at the Mission Community Health Clinic. At the end of the art class, one of the neurologists from UCSF would come and teach people about the importance of creativity in brain health. Wow. Yeah. And so if the community is a Latino center, the talk would be given in Spanish. Mm -hmm. If the community is Chinese, the talk would be given in Chinese. So they're very inclusive in this aspect. Yeah, which is another skill set as well, is to be able to navigate these places without one size fits all and be able to respond locally. It's very important. Absolutely. So I spent a lot of my time working in state government, in the Department of Corrections, with the Department of Mental Health, the Department of Aging, with the California Arts Council. And I think this idea of translating to policy is critical, especially with social prescription, because it does require an infrastructure. It requires training and it requires support and monitoring and accountability because you're messing with people's lives. And I know for UCSF and Creative Minds, it would be an amazing thing to be able to prescribe it and get funding that way as well. And Yes. The other thing is that we cannot put all our eggs in prescription in the baskets of prescriptions because they're going to take a long time to work. Yeah. And they come with a lot of adverse reactions. Yeah. You're talking about the drugs themselves, the actual... Yeah, the drugs themselves. And also, they do not help where the arts can. No. So I think it's so very important for all of us to be able to have this in our lives. Yeah, I think the metaphor here, maybe it's not a metaphor, but it's just a picture. It's that so much of the dementia story for most people is loss. And what we're talking about here is additive. It's like someone who's been told, your muscles can't grow anymore. And in fact, you turn around and you go, oh, yes, they can. There are muscles there that can actually grow. Even a few years ago, people thought that after childhood, your brain loses neuroplasticity. Right. But it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's, you just it's have like to exercise. like a piece of clay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you have to keep molding the piece of clay. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's never enough time for all the conversations we need to have. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, Veronica, you've made my day. Made my day. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. All right. Adios. 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 Hasta luego. (laughs) Bye. And again, thanks to our listeners. And a reminder, please check out our collections of past episodes that have been organized by subject and arts discipline and other ways on our website at www.artandcommunity.com under the podcast drop-down. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape blossom up regularly from the brilliant musical garden tended by Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org and our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOP 235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. One last note. This episode has been 100% human.